This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome. You're listening to New Books and Gender Studies. I'm your host, Shohini Chatterjee. I'm a PhD candidate in gender, sexuality, and women's studies at Western University. And I am delighted to be in conversation today with Dr. Cameron Awkward-Rich about the terrible we, thinking with trans maladjustment. Dr. Awkward-Rich is assistant professor in the Department of Women, Gender, Sexuality Studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and is also a published poet and author of two collections of poetry, namely Sympathetic Little Monster and Dispatch, published in 2016 and 2019, respectively. Today, we'll be in conversation about his new book, The Terrible We, Thinking with Trans Maladjustment, published by Duke University Press. And it is also the recipient of Duke University Press Scholars of Color First Book Award and is all set to be released in the month of November this year. Um, Heartiest congratulations and welcome to the New Books Network, Cameron. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you for having me. I have not yet, I feel like I have not yet actually talked to anybody about this book. So we'll see how it goes. Right. It was it was an absolute honor to get to re- read the book before the world. Um, and I have so many questions um, about the book. But, but before we get into it, could you begin by uh, telling us a little bit about your intellectual journey and how it shaped your book? Sure, of course. Um, I think that to really answer that question, unfortunately, I have to go all the way back to when I was an undergraduate uh, at Wesleyan University in Connecticut. Um, Because there at Wesleyan, I was a biology and English double major um, who sort of resolutely did not take classes in the gender studies department at Wesleyan. Um, I think largely because, I don't know, I was kind of like, a baby trans kid who couldn't couldn't bear uh, being made into the sort of um, uh, subject of my studies. Um, so anyway, I was there. I was a biology and English double major, which meant that I spent a lot of time as an undergraduate being sort of deeply bewildered by what seemed to me to be the kind of not necessarily incompatible, but deeply different kind of field habituses that I uh, inhabited there. Um, It seemed to me that what counted as knowledge in biology versus English was profoundly different. Um, The kind of modes of comportment that we as students and that I saw my professors modeling uh, were like completely different across these fields. And so I I was really interested even then as an undergraduate about um, the kind of chasms that various kinds of disciplinarity create, chasms that are intellectual, but also just like about how we relate to each other under the auspices of those fields. 
So, okay, I was an undergrad, I was thinking about these things, um, but I was also sort of deeply involved in queer and trans and feminist kind of activism and social life on campus. And for that reason, I don't know, I feel like I got a bit of an education actually in feminist studies through uh, my friends, through my housemates, um, and also through being kind of a known quantity on campus, I think, to some of the queer and feminist professors. Um, and one of those professors sort of fatefully was teaching what was, I think, the first trans studies class on Wesleyan campus when I was a junior or a senior. Um, and she invited me along to this conference, um, which was, I think, the 2010 uh, trans like health and law conference. Um, and I'd never been to such a place before. Um, and I found it really enlivening. Um, but there was also this like very formative thing that happened, which was that I was in this workshop at this conference, um, which was sort of roughly about what are we gonna do about the GID diagnosis? What do we think, what do we, think we ought to do about this diagnosis? Um, and there was just like this very funny moment where, I mean, in retrospect, it's funny, then it was a little bit bewildering, where it just seemed evident to me that even though uh, I understood transness and disability to be deeply entangled, sort of politically and in their history, et cetera, um, and even though it seemed clear to me that many of the people in this room having this conversation were themselves both trans and uh, disabled or neurodivergent, um, so many people, like everybody in the room, except for me, seemed to be like deeply hostile to the idea uh, that transness and disability might interrelate with one another. Um, and this was a moment that I like became fixated on, like really fixated on for years. Uh, I wrote poems about it. I think I tried to write like a college paper about it um, because I just didn't understand. And I didn't understand it in the same way that I didn't understand the kind of chasm that seemed to open up between trans, you know, between English and biology. It seemed like a similar sort of problem to me. Um, yeah, and so then I went to grad school and I got a PhD from this very funny program called Modern Thought and Literature at Stanford, um, which while I was there, I thought how strange uh, to claim to be getting a doctorate in thought. Um, but now in retrospect, it just is true that that is how my intellectual life is arranged, that what I am interested in at the end of the day is theory and the way that it is mediated through various kinds of cultural production, but especially literature. Um, this book is trans theory and trans literature, um, but I feel like I make similar moves with kind of black feminist theory and literature, et cetera. Um, but it was at Stanford and in this kind of profoundly interdisciplinary PhD program where I was more or less given the freedom to do whatever I wanted. Uh, and it turned out that what I wanted to do was keep thinking about this moment at this conference that uh, five years earlier had bewildered me about um, what I understood trans politics to be. Um, and then, I don't know, then I wrote the dissertation that would become the terrible we uh, for that program. 
And yeah, and now it's now. Now I am a gender studies professor, even though um, I avoided gender studies professors as an undergraduate. Um, and I try to teach in such a way that maybe my trans students won't avoid me in the ways that I did. Yeah, that's that's beautifully put, and and you've had such a fascinating journey. Um, in the book and its and its powerful introduction, you you contend that trans maladjustment, um, which you identify not just as an outcome of oppression, um, but also central to trans epistemology and cultural production, is a resource for trans thought. Um, could you elaborate on this for our audience? Sure. Um, I think that I'm going to take this question back a few steps. Um, and what I'll say is that and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later, my sort of orientation to thinking and writing, which is sort of mediated through my life as a poet more than maybe as a scholar. But I think that I say something like uh, that trans maladjustment might be a resource for trans thought. Um, and I pursue that might be sort of very seriously across the book. Um, but first, I think that maybe it's worthwhile to say a little bit about what I mean by trans maladjustment. Um, because I mean three sort of entangled things. Um, and I hope that the phrase maladjustment kind of helps me and also my readers to hold on to these three things perhaps at once. Um, the first thing uh, which is, I think, the most obvious thing, uh, is just sort of, I mean, trans maladjustment to index this kind of durable association of trans with particular bad feelings and mad habits of thought, right? I use trans maladjustment as a phrase to try to point to the way that in both what we think of as trans affirmative and trans antagonistic discourses, um, over and over again, there is a kind of association of trans people, transness, with things like depression, kind of unruly post-traumatic affect, uh, dissociation, uh, a kind of spooky feeling of feeling haunted. Um, so I use trans maladjustment to point to this sort of durable association that seems to me to cross both transphobic and transaffirmative discourses alike. I think the second thing that I mean by maladjustment is actually um, that I'm trying to use it in order to signal that what I'm talking about is feeling, is affect, is emotion, um, but that mostly or maybe primarily what I'm talking about is the way that um, these things that we might think of as being profoundly relational, right? So we can think of uh, situations that provoke particular affective intensities uh, that then are narrated as particular emotions, right? Um, so we can think about affect and emotion as being profoundly relational. But what I'm interested with the phrase maladjustment is the way that those uh, relations come to be understood as conditions, right? So how it is that um, uh, the kind of sense that trans uh, bad feeling, which arises from the sort of situation of being a particular kind of person uh, exposed to particular kinds of vulnerabilities and violences in the context of the given, right? Um, 
how that relationality is obscured and it comes to be seen as a condition, um, a condition to be treated or not. Um, but so maladjustment is trying to index a condition rather than a relation. Um, and I think also I try to use maladjustment in a way to position transness in a particular kind of relationship to disability as a kind of legal category more than anything else. Um, I think that this thread is, is, is probably less robust um, than it could have been in the book. But I was really, I'm really interested in the way that uh, there are certain things, transness among them, that have been historically understood through the sort of rubric of the psychiatric system as being impairments. But that could not be, for a variety of reasons, recuperated, quote unquote, um, into kind of uh, uh, a liberal disability politic um, because there is like too much associated negativity. Um, and so I think that what I'm one of the things that I'm trying to do with maladjustment is to emphasize uh, a kind of particular and kind of strange and strange relationship that the category of trans has to the category of disability. Um, uh, insofar as I think that um, in the same way that disability sometimes has to be the thing that is abjected in order for a liberal trans politics to take shape, that forms of gender deviance and gender nonconformity are things that have to be objected in order for a kind of liberal disability politics. Um, so I was trying to use that phrase to like mark the kind of strange and particular relationship between these two categories. Okay, so that, that was a long, that was a long, long thing, basically to say trans maladjustment. Uh, I'm trying to say three things by it. Um, but I think that basically there's like a kind of a simple answer to your question, um, which maybe contains a more complicated answer. But I think the simple answer is basically just, I think that maladjustment for all kinds of reasons um, is endemic to trans life and trans thought, that it is um, shapes uh, so much cultural transcultural production, shapes so much trans thought and ways of relating to one another. Um, and I think that I just think uh, alongside many thinkers of affect, many queer theorists, many feminist theorists, um, that one has to have a different kind of response to that endemic condition rather than to just say it's not true, or rather than to just say um, it's merely a misinterpretation from the outside. Um, because if trans maladjustment has shaped so much trans knowledge, uh, then the question, for me at least, is what then has it enabled? Uh, what thought, what modes of relating, and so on, um, has maladjustment actually enabled, rather than only thinking about it as a kind of um, thing that has constrained or quote unquote impaired trans life and thought. Um, yeah, so in this book, I conduct a series of thought experiments about what trans maladjustment might enable in terms of the thinking about a set of conflicts within and around trans studies and feminist studies. Um, but I think that this kind of thinking can be applied to any number of kind of um, interpretive situations where the question is, um, are we going to perform the kind of move where, uh, well, no, I've lost my train of thought. Um, 
Yeah, I I think that's perfect actually. Um, and you you talk about affect and bad feelings a little bit, and and building off of that, I I love how you place affect, desire, and feeling central to trans studies, and ask how does trans studies feel like? Um, could you talk about how centering affect in trans scholarship helps resist um, speech acts that disavow any affinity with disability and madness? Sure. Um. I guess my first answer to your question is, I don't think that centering affect necessarily um, helps resist speech acts that disavow disability. Um, But I think that in the context of this book, what I was really interested in with this question, what does trans studies feel like, um, was trying to map something that I call um, the emotional habitus of trans studies. Um, And I think that for me, paying attention to uh, the way that a field is in a kind of Robin Wiegman way, right, um, shaped not only by certain intellectual disputes, um, but is also deeply driven by a set of uh, political or personal or collective feelings, desires, Um, really paying attention to that helped me to see actually um, the the disavowal of disability within trans studies. Um, So it was really by paying attention to the way that um, what seemed like just sort of like a set of idiosyncratic uh, rhetorical moves that really wanted to suture transness to joy, to hope to curiosity that really wanted to sort of disarticulate transness from depression, from various forms of bad feeling. I think that really paying attention to that and seeing it as a condition of the knowledge project of the field helped me to see the way that that move um, was also a move um, that was attempting to disavow disability in order to secure something like rhetorical authority for trans studies. Um, So I don't think that paying attention to affect and desire necessarily um, helps with this problem, but I think that for me, paying attention to the way that fields are themselves animated by particular affects and desires um, helps me to understand something about um, why Uh, it was so hard for um, people at this conference that I was talking about originally, or um, uh, Standy Stone, or Susan Stryker in particular moments to kind of think transness and disability together, Um, that it was a sort of animating desire rather than necessarily always and already a kind of um, uh, intellectual desire. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, In the book, you also tell us about your scholarly intention behind focusing on transmasculine archives in in order to, if I can use the word resist, um, the separation of the transgender subject and and madness. Could you tell us a little bit more about um, the transmasculine archive, bad feelings, and how does it um, help us think about epistemic justice in trans studies? Sure. I I feel like this is a question that I don't exactly have an answer to. Um, I can try to offer one, um, but yeah, I think that this is, this is a great question that I, that I think 
I don't, I don't necessarily know. I guess what I can say is that one of the reasons that I focus on trans masculinity in this book, um, rather than uh, a sort of generic or universalized trans, um, is that I think that there is a kind of a way in which the sort of harsh uh, hypervisibility of trans femininity creates a kind of particular set of problems for the narration of trans masculinity. Um, it has meant, I think, that transmasculine people and transmasculine theory um, is often um, often relies on narratives and tropes that are actually about trans femininity, um, but try to universalize them to trans experience. Um, but what I have been interested in and what I was trying to do in this book, although whether I succeed is another story, is to think about the way that trans masculinity is also and obviously shaped by the bad feelings, the forms of maladjustment that arise from uh, attempting to craft a masculinity in a cultural context structured by trans antagonism, by misogyny, et cetera. And how I think, I mean, I think that this is less true than it was when I started writing. Um, but I think that there is a less developed vocabulary for thinking about the impacts of trans antagonism, trans misogyny, well, not trans misogyny, but misogyny uh, on trans masculinity and its narration. And so it has kind of prevented, I think, uh, trans men and other trans masculine people from, I don't know. I mean, being able to have a discourse honestly about the bad feelings that arise from trans masculine life without seeming to pit it against trans femininity, right? So I think that all that I was trying to do by focusing on trans masculinity is just say, yeah, there is a particular set of bad feelings here. There is a particular set of narrative problems here. And by focusing in on what I call the transmasculine archetype, but which is really sort of um, writing by and about mostly white trans men um, in the kind of US and sort of Britain, um, that by doing that, what I was really hoping to do was like offer some vocabulary toward um, uh, a kind of transmasculine feminist writing that is not so caught up in uh, articulating itself against trans femininity. I don't know if this makes any sense because I'm not offering specific examples, but um, but yeah, it was really kind of like how to narrate transmasculine life in a way that is also feminist. This is extremely thought-provoking and and you're making me think about the questions as well. Um, 
and maybe I'll, I'll go back when I read your book again and um, listen to this interview to, to sort of also make sense of um, what you talk about um, in the book um, in terms of bad feelings and mal- maladjustment neurodivergence and and yeah this is this is so interesting um in the first chapter of your book you write that your focus is on spaces of constraint agency um such as the courthouse um the prison asylum sensational newspaper reports um spaces that produce trans and disabled um as categories of people, as you put it. Um, would you like to tell us how does focusing on these spaces instead of trans and disabled people particularly um, shape the book um, and its intellectual priorities? Yeah. Um, thank you for this question. I, I think that um, you, in asking the question, have helped me to think about the arrangement of the book um, in a way that I hope that I'll be able to articulate. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, this was a very helpful question to me, I just want to say first. Um, and I think I'm going to offer sort of a long answer, um, which will arrive at basically a very simple, a simple answer. But um, I think that this is a book that claims to be about the to be about and to insist on the overlap between trans and disabled uh, histories, politics, uh, people, forms of thought. Um, and I think that one of the kind of profound anxieties I have about this book is that when I say that there are many kinds of things that this book, that, that kind of book could be, and they're all um, projects that I think are necessary and that I would be excited, right, to be in conversation with. Um, And I think that one of those kinds of thing that this book is not, um, but which I sometimes am worried uh, that people come to it, will come to it wanting, um, is a book that is about um, trans and disabled experience, right? Um, or alternatively, a book that is really attentive to the kind of um, co-history of pathology and pathologization and travels through uh, the medical system. Um, I think that I worry that people will come to this book hoping uh, to find a sort of crip trans politics, which I think I gesture towards, but um, at the end of the day, I, I, I don't think that I am in the position to offer such a thing. Um, so, right, this book could be many things. It could be kind of an empirical book about trans-disabled experience. It could be a book that claims to be about the assembly of a trans-disabled politics. Um, but at the end of the day, what it really is, is a book that traces a series of fights uh, within uh, gender studies, basically, um, uh, in order to ask the question, how does thinking with rather than against trans maladjustment shape or help us reframe the terms of these really annoying fights? Um, And the reason that I say your question helped me to understand what I was up to in retrospect um, is because 
I think that I understand WGSS, the field of gender studies, as a kind of contemporary space of constrained agency in which trans life unfolds, trans life and thinking unfolds. Um, And so that just like uh, in that first chapter, where what I'm really interested in is the way that these spaces of constrained agency or suspended agency um, shape the terms by which we might understand in the present uh, the history of trans and disability as being entangled. Um, I think that likewise, I return to kind of 90s and 2000s fights within the field of WGSS as a way of thinking, how is it that transness was produced as a category of people uh, by this field? And how am I insisting actually on the overlap between trans and disability help us to understand that category and the thought that orients it slightly differently. Um, So to return all the way back to my kind of first answer about my intellectual biography, um, I think that my insistence on thinking about spaces and discourses rather than people and experience is precisely because at the end of the day, what I am oriented to as an intellectual uh, is questions of, disciplinarity itself is questions of how it is certain knowledge projects inculcate in us certain um, modes of comportment and habits of relating to each other um, that and, and and also an insistence that the university as a disciplinary apparatus is not um, wholly unlike for example uh, the freak show uh, the sensational news report, et cetera, insofar as what it does is it gives us a vocabulary for making sense of life. Um, so this is a very long answer to your question, and I'm not sure that I actually answered the question, um, but it is a very, it's very helpful for me in terms of thinking about how the whole book actually is preoccupied with um, what it means to live and think transness in spaces of constraint agency. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a very powerful and, and a nuance, um, nuanced answer. Um, at, at one point in the first chapter, you write that you're a poet and, and not a historian and that your insistence on uh, multiplicity comes from that place of identification as a poet, which defies fixity, um, transgresses um, constraints and, and might even welcome excess. Um, how has this book been influenced by your creative process? And it also makes me want to ask, how does a poet's insistence on engaging with the world differently allow you to write about desire, affect, and justice? Cool. Thank you. Um, I think the first thing to say about this question and about that line, I'm a poet and not a historian, is that I knew when I was writing it that I was borrowing it from somewhere. Um, But I thought that I was borrowing it and kind of modifying it from an essay that I had recently read by my friend KJ Sarankowski, where he is talking about encountering the archives and is like, listen, I'm a storyteller, not a historian. So um, I'm I'm interested in a particular set of things here. Um, But recently I have been teaching a class called Poetry and as Black Feminist Thought. And in that context, I have sort of returned in a deep way to Audre Lorde's Sister Outsider. Um, 
And it turns out that I have actually stolen that line from Audre Lorde um, in this interview that she does with Audrey and Rich. Um, and in that context, in the context of that interview, I think that what Lord is talking about is um, saying, listen, there are different evidentiary standards um, between poetry and history. Um, and that what I as a poet am setting out to do is to preserve and communicate as fully and truthfully my perception of the world um, rather than setting out as a historian might do to um, defend right an argument um, and I think that unknowingly um, or beneath beneath my conscious my, my conscious knowing um, this distinction between the work of poetry and the work of history uh, really shapes um, not just that chapter, but how I set about writing all of the essays in the book, um, which I think follow a kind of logic of, I don't know, kind of like accumulation or being pulled along by resonance um, more often than uh, by a logic of here is my argument and here is me marshalling evidence in order to defend that argument. Um, so I think that my, this is a long way of saying that I think that my practice as a poet um, really shaped the forms of these essays and really shaped my sense that uh, even though this would be published as an academic book, what I was after was not you know, having the final word on something and not coming to um, kind of a resolution or a kind of coherent theoretical program, but instead was a way of, I mean, in a kind of Lordian way, uh, preserving and communicating my perception as truly and fully as possible. Um, so there's that. Um, I think also the second part of your question, which is a question about um, a poet's insistence on engaging the world differently. I think that um, so much of my attention to affect and to desire are conditioned by my life as a poet. I mean, I think that it is easy for me in an academic way to say that I'm writing in a particular kind of theoretical conversation um, whose terms are set by a particular set of affect theorists um, or uh, black feminist theorists. Um, but I think that at the end of the day, the thing that brought me to that conversation in the first place was the experience of being a poet in a room, reading a poem that is more or less just, again, an attempt to articulate truthfully and fully my perception of the world, and watching the way that doing so could change 
more, I think, than any arguments that I attempted to set out. Um, somebody's perception of what it might mean to live a life, uh, what it might mean to be in relation to other people, uh, what might be important in the world. And I mean, I think that this is sort of touchy-feely and not precisely a good academic answer to the question of what theory is about. Um, but I really think that what theory does and what poetry does are very similar in that what they are about fundamentally to me anyway is finding a familiar scene rearranged and retold in just the right way so as to open kind of new ways of conceiving the world and conceiving yourself in relation to the world and sometimes conceiving yourself. Um, so I don't know. I think that until very recently, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel brave enough to say this, but I think at the end of the day, basically, um, it, it's not exactly that I am an affect theorist, but rather that I am a poet um, who, who writes in a variety of genres, but ultimately is interested in, uh, ultimately is interested in the touchy feely stuff and how it can change our sort of perceptions of uh, each other. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you write about Evelyn um, Jackie Bross's story and how they were sent into an asylum for so-called cross-dressing as the presiding judge wanted them to be fixed and disciplined through through psychiatric supervision away from public space. Um, and in this context, you write, and I quote, the path from courthouse to asylum is one of the ways in which gender non-conforming and disabled bodies were co-articulated, made to occupy the same spaces, collected together under the broad rubric of insanity or incapacity, unquote. Um, could you talk a little bit about the effects of this co-articulation um, and the unexplored possibilities of, of trans-disability um, justice that was opened or uh, foreclosed in this context? Sure. I'm not, I feel like I don't exactly understand this question. And I wonder if, uh, I wonder if it's possible for me to ask you to say it in a different, in a slightly different way. And if not, that's okay. I can, I can do my best attempt. But um, yeah, just I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm just interested in in the possibilities that the score articulation offers, um, and how it um, sort of helps us think about trans disability studies. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. I think that um, I think that the sort of scene of the asylum or the scene of the kind of um, attempt to quote unquote fix in kind of both senses of the word, right, make stable and also uh, cure gender nonconformity uh, by the psychiatric uh, by psychiatric knowledge, right. Um, both in this sort of scene of Evelyn Jackie Bross, but I also talk a little bit later in the book about um, the kind of artist, memoirist, Dylan Skolinski, who um, wrote, I think, it's kind of like a well-known memoir about the experience of having been basically interred in a mental institution um, when they were a teenager uh, under the kind of diagnosis of gender identity disorder, which had just at the time, had, had the time like sort of just been crystallized in the DSM. Um, and so I think that this scene, right, of um, the kind of carceral space of the mental institution is one that really 
animates, at least um, within trans studies and trans discourse, uh, the desire uh, to disarticulate uh, transness from disability, um, because it is easy, I think, for folks who have been affected, right, negatively affected, interred in mental institutions because of the co-articulation of transness and disability. Um, it's really easy, I think, to say the thing to do to ameliorate the situation is to understand that trans people are not um, mentally ill, basically, um, and therefore ought not be subject to this disciplinary power, this force of disciplinary power. Um, but what I think one finds uh, in that argument, and it, this is the obvious thing that I think kind of animates, animates the project of the whole book, um, what one finds in that argument is a sort of re, um, a reification of the logics of the medical legal system that would say uh, being mad, being neurodivergent, uh, being disabled is a legitimate uh, reason uh, to inter you in this carceral space, is a legitimate reason for the sort of um, deauthorizing of your knowledge, of the sort of withdrawal of autonomy from you. Um, and so, I mean, I think that the whole book is motored along by the insistence that one has to have a different kind of response to something like the scene of the asylum, that it can't just be, um, we are not sick and therefore ought not be subject to this force. Um, and so I think that I see in the space of the asylum, and I mean, I think it's kind of like a poetic flourish that is um, a possibility or a potentiality more than it, um, has always been actualized, but I see in that space a really potent site for transcript sort of coalition to contest, right, the, um, to contest the sort of medical legal regulation of modes of comportment, modes of sociality, modes of um, unruly affect uh, in the first place, right? And I think that we are now seeing more of this, but also that, um, if one looks back into the moment of um, kind of Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, et cetera's um, kind of protests of Bellevue for uh, interring uh, trans folks there under the sort of guise of mental illness, I think you can see in those moments a kind of incipient uh, transcript politics that contests, right? Not that. Um, trans people have been unfairly or unjustly interpreted as sick, um, but rather that there is something unjust in this arrangement of power that subjects both of these categories to this carceral institution. Um, yeah, so I think, I think basically the scene of the asylum is something that both animates the desire for certain kinds of trans discourse to disarticulate from disability, but also is a site around which one can see most clearly, I think, uh, the way in which the two categories are bound up in, with one another and where there is a kind of, um, a really a kind of potent, um, a potentially potent and vexed uh, site of the coalition. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, while going through your book, I, um, I was thinking about transcript match coalitions in the present. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, have to ask you this and it's probably more 
more aligned with my interests, um, what possibilities can can ethical solidarities offer in terms of affirming trans and Kripmat lives and, and sustaining activist efforts? Well, okay, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do the annoying thing where I'm gonna say <laughs> I'm gonna say yeah, it's true. I feel like this is I feel like unfortunately or fortunately, the kind of uh, boundaries of my knowledge. Uh, and here, I think. I mean, I think that I can speculate, um, but that it seems to me from knowing a little bit about you and your work, just based on kind of looking you up, um, that you probably have theories about this. So I wonder what your theories are about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe that's that's another conversation for another day. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a question that I think about a lot, um, and I I probably will come up with an answer at some point. Um, you also write incredibly powerfully about the neoliberal uh, about neoliberal subjectivity, productive citizenship. Um, American colonialism, anti-blackness, um, racial, racial capitalism, and, and contend that depression, bad feelings um, associated with it create also possibilities of living together um, and uh, bear the irresolution of trans feminism, as you put it. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk a bit about how relating madly and epistemologies of pain might also make us think about trans and mad desires and, and modes of living? Sure. I'm not, I'm not entirely certain that I understand this question. So if I, if I am not actually answering it, please feel free to interrupt me and say, no, this is, this is what I mean. Um, but I guess, unfortunately, or not unfortunately, but I think that again, this sort of brings me back to Audre Lorde, who is not in this book at all, but it turns out um, is turns out she animates a lot of my thinking, even when I don't know that that's what's going on. Um, But I think now um, so much about her insistence um, on the necessity to not flee from uh, pain that has been sort of, okay, okay, let me, let me, I'm going to try to say it differently. There's a moment in the introduction where what I'm talking about is um, the way that uh, part of the kind of uh, set of thinkers who have helped me to like arrive at this book is the Combahee River Collective. Um, And in that instance, I'm talking about um, the Combahee River Collective statement, which is a kind of famous and always taught document uh, about that sort of traces a particular uh, genealogy of black feminism in the U.S. Um, and are, tries to articulate a sort of particular black feminism from that perspective. Um, but there's something about that statement that has always kind of struck me as um, particularly interesting um, or unremarked upon, uh, which is how much of it is dedicated to the question of, okay, like, given that we as Black women have been uh, damaged, I think this is actually their word, damaged by capitalism, by racism, by sexism, and given the way that that damage makes it hard for us to relate to each other in the first place, hard for us to sit in a room and think together, um, what what do we do? Um, and I think that 
one of the answers that that statement offers and one of the, sta- the answers that Audre Lorde offers, and I think how I see her sort of so much in that statement, is that one has to be willing and able to think that pain is not only um, an outcome of oppression, although it is, um, but it's also uh, something that signals to us that we are kind of in the vicinity of something we need to learn. Um, and that that learning uh, is both like how to relate to each other, what to avoid, these kinds of things. Um, but I think that in the context of um, trans and uh, mad desires and modes of living in particular, I think that there's a way, and I'll answer this about trans first and then, and then, then maybe I'll have something more to say about mad desires and modes of living. But I think that there's a way that at least um, in the the present, um, one is expected to narrate uh, trans desires as being about the kind of movement away from pain, right? That uh, what one is doing is moving from dysphoria to euphoria or bad feeling to good feeling, et cetera. Um, But that (laughs) actually, that narrative sort of is one narrative that continues to sort of deauthorize trans manifestation in the first place, um, because then people are always on the lookout for the kind of persistence of trans bad feeling um, as a way of saying, okay, like your desire was a kind of inauthentic desire because it didn't produce the thing that you wanted. Um, and so part of my insistence on sticking with trans maladjustment, sticking with bad feeling is to say, uh, there is, I don't know. Oh no, nope. I don't think that I'm gonna be able to do it. I think that I'm not gonna be able to answer this question um, for which I'm sorry, but I feel like, I feel like all I'm trying to say basically is that um, so many of our social and political discourses are structured by the desire to resolve conflict, right? Um, whether it's resolve a kind of gendered conflict, uh, resolve a kind of conflict within one's personality, resolve a kind of conflict within a field, but that my asking us to sit with and think with bad feeling and maladjustment is an ask to sort of sit with and try to bear irresolution of all kinds. Um, and that this has everything I think to do with uh, uh, relating to the world madly, right? Um, Relating to the world as a trans person, um, because it is about um, insisting that this is sort of where life happens in the irresolution of uh, transition, in the irresolution of um, one's bad feeling, in the irresolution of X, Y, or Z. So yes, I don't think that I've answered your question, but I will say that that's what it makes me think of. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much, Cameron, for for this um, extremely thought-provoking conversation. Um, Before we we let you go, would you like to tell us what you're currently working on? Sure. Um, I'm working on three things, all of which exist in various levels of uh, relationships to reality. Um, The first is just a book of poems. I mean, I'm always working on a book of poems and I feel like there isn't very much to say about that. Um, 
The second thing is what will perhaps one day become a second academic book um, that I only know a little bit about, um, but which is sort of loosely going to be concerned again with questions of um, irresolution, of madness, of transness. Um, but in this case, we'll sort of try to track some kind of conversation uh, between um, or like over a kind of particular historical duration. And in this case, it's kind of from Polly Murray's uh, young kind of 1930s uh, to a kind of proliferation of black trans poetries in the kind of post 2014 period. Um, and so it's a book that is really going to be interested in kind of mad black trans uh, creative labor and creativity. Um, and the last thing, which is perhaps closest to real, um, is that one of the people that I, whose work I want to write about in this academic book is the kind of um, mixed race, although most often hailed as black, uh, writer, painter, uh, and sort of like just peculiar figure, uh, Red Jordan Robito, who um, was a kind of prolific character um, who self-published, I think it must be hundreds of thousands of pages of kind of uh, fiction, poetry, kind of uh, life writing stuff, um, and who I am really interested in as somebody who helps me to um, uh, uh, think about what it might actually mean to um, produce uh, a different story about transliterary history um, that doesn't begin, for example, with Stone Butch Blues, um, but also uh, who helps me to really think about what it might mean practically to think with trans maladjustment and the terrible we, because he is, as I say, he's sort of a peculiar figure, um, but whose insight about the world I am really excited about um, being able to participate in circulating a little bit more widely. Um, yeah, so those are the three things that I'm working on book of poems, book of essays, and this kind of um, sort of creative, sort of editorial project of trying to produce something from uh, the journals of Red. Yeah. That's that's so interesting. And when you have your next book out, maybe we can have you back on uh, NBN. Um, thank you so much, Cameron, for, for just being so gentle with the questions and, and for your um, patience and, and intellectual generosity um, in this interview. And you've written a book that I know will, will prove to be an invaluable resource in, in both trans studies um, and critical disability studies as well as trans disability studies. And I, I know it also sort of promises to make us think about cross-movement uh, solidarity in, in profoundly transformative ways. Um, it was an absolute honor to have you with us today. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. I, I, it is really heartening, I think, to know that a book has found its audience.